0: Starting in September, uh, we are gonna be getting, uh, begin, we're going to we be 're going to begin we 're going to begin our second round of what we call School of theology, which is a uh, a four week period where on Sundays in the evening, we uh, come back after church and we have some classes topical classes where Um, we can, as a church, study certain topics that we don't get a chance to uh, think about on Sunday mornings because one of the things that we do in our church is uh, our teaching on Sunday mornings is I just go straight through books of the Bible. Whatever the next passage is, that's what we're going to be talking about. So we don't get to talk about Nate's little pet topics that he wants to talk about. We're going to talk about what the Bible is talking about. But it is helpful sometimes to take certain topics and have time to uh, look at them a little more closely and in depth and so uh, we're going to be doing that on uh, Sundays in September and um, what we're asking is that uh, first of all we just encourage you to be a part of that to uh, ma- make that a plan for, for Septem- uh, September. We don't do these classes year-round it's just concentrated times during the year where we uh, study together so uh, try to make that a priority in September to come and be a part of it but we're also asking that you um, uh, would register for these classes. Uh, part of the reason for that is because uh, we're offering uh, children's catechism classes teaching theology and uh, Bible to our children. And um, also we just need to plan for these, for these courses. So there's gonna be a, uh, I'm going to be teaching a course on the, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Daniel is going to be teaching a theology course on uh, the doctrines of grace, uh, some of the distinctive theology of, of our church. And then uh, Chris Van Hoffingen is also going to be teaching a Christ Church 101 uh, course which uh, is if you're new to our church and uh, you've decided to make Christ Church your home church and you want to learn a little bit more about what we believe and why we do things the way we do, this is, this is the introductory class, kind of a membership class. You can learn about what membership is. And uh, so that's also going to be uh, happening the first, first two weeks. Is that right, Chris? School of Theology or, or Christ Church 101? So, uh, so sign up for that. And so uh, registration forms look like this. They are out in the lobby. Is that right, Diana? Where is Diana? Give me a wave. There is that right? They're out there. Okay, fill these out, and uh, we'd love to have you be a part. So, um, and uh, that is, um, you know, in the next few weeks. <clears throat> few weeks. I'm also. Uh, this is just a second pre-announcement. <clears throat> in the next few weeks, I want to talk a little bit about uh, children's ministry in our church and um, being a part of it. What role does it play in discipleship in our church and the mission of our church? And I uh, just really want to encourage people to come and be a part of what we're doing. So in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, our philosophy of children's ministry and, and just to encourage you to pray about being a part of that and serving the kids, both in our church and the kids that may be visiting our church and families that may be visiting our church. So it's an integral part of the mission of Christ Church Bellingham. So in the next couple of weeks, uh, you can hear about that and... Um, uh, and so think about, uh, as we uh, begin looking for children's ministry uh, partners for this next year, that y- you might be a part of that, okay? So uh, that's all we have for announcements. Uh, we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're, we're going to be studying through the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians uh, through the month of September. And then starting October, we're going to look at the book of Ruth uh, during the fall. So uh, over the course of our church year, in, in the fall, we always look at an Old Testament book. From Christmas to Pentecost, which is usually in late May or early June, we always look at a Gospel, and in the summers we always look at a New Testament letter. So this summer we're beginning to look at uh, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And uh, just this is a passage that's really one of the formative passages for uh, the way our church functions, our whole kind of philosophy of church. Is right here in this passage, so I'm excited to look at it together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear God's word. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear. And much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you especially for the gospel. That the thing that has brought us here, the thing that has made us yours, is good news. Uh, it is news for us to rest in, to find joy in, to find life in, and to learn to love uh, you and one another in. We pray that you would open these words to us, uh, just as, as Paul even talks about a demonstration of the spirit and of power, that um, our faith might not rest in the wisdom, wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we pray that you would uh, send your spirit now to guide us into all truth and um, draw us to yourself, that we may rest in you and trust in you, and um, we may understand what it is to be your people. And so we pray this now in Christ's name, amen. So this morning, our, our topic for the mor- this morning is the topic of preaching, which is, you know, actually the, the word preaching... I, If you didn't grow up in the church, I I didn't grow up in the church, the word preaching has always had a negative connotation to me. And even to this day, I feel kind of strange calling myself a preacher because the only context I ever heard the word preaching in was uh, when someone says, you know, they're doing something wrong and they say, don't preach at me, right? Preaching is when you tell people what they're doing wrong. That's essentially what preaching is. So that's not what I do all the time, preaching. And yet, uh, preaching is, uh, that's what the Bible says, it, preaching is the announcement to the world of who God is and who Jesus is and what God has done. And uh, it turns out, the Bible says that all of us as Christians play a role in announcing to the world who the true God of the world is and what he's done in the gospel in Christ. That's, it's, all, it's each one of our responsibilities to varying degrees and in different ways. And I know that for some of you, when... I say that, that you have a responsibility to tell people about Jesus. You get uneasy about that. And part of the reason for that is because you say, you know, I have friends who are not Christians who don't know anything about the Bible, and, you know, I would love to share my faith with them. But I'm reluctant to cram my beliefs down their throat, you know, I, I, because, and part of the reason for that is because I don't like that when people do that to me, right? Even when Christians do that. I'm a Christian, and I'll meet Christians, and they're aggressive with me, and they're trying to uh, get me to believe certain things, or I have someone come into my door, and I'm in the middle of dinner, and they're trying to get me to believe something. And if I'm supposed to love people the way I want to be loved, how am I going to do that? How am I going to challenge people with this uh, announcement? Well, um, well, this is a, a problem that I've had to come to terms with because my whole vocation is a vocation of telling people about Jesus. It's my, it's my job. It's my whole life is devoted to this. And uh, and so, um, I've had, we have to think through that. How do we love people the way that we want to be loved? And what does that look like in announcing to people, preaching at people? How do we do that? Well, um, one of the things that I've realized is that, on the one hand, even though I don't want people cramming their beliefs down my throat, one of the things that gives me more joy, more pleasure than anything in the world is having deep, rich conversations with people. Open conversations about, about things that really matter. And and for many people, many people long to have those kind of discussions. If they're open, if they're honest, if they're not pushy. People long to have those kind of discussions. And those are the kind of relationships that I want to have. And so one of the things that I've realized and I've kind of internalized is, okay, I don't want to jam, cram my beliefs down people's throats, but... The kinds of relationships that I want to have, whether it's with a Christian or with a non-Christian, is a kind of Christian where, sure, we talk about football. I love talking about football. I love football. I'll talk about that. But we're not only going to talk about things that are kind of superficial. I want to talk about life and things that matter and who I am and who we are and why is the world here. I want to have those kinds of conversations. Oop, oh, am I, uh, have a problems there? All right, if that goes on, I'll swap out or something. Um, should I swap Move it down, okay, too loud. My beard, my beard's scruffing. It's already that long, okay. Uh, Where was I? Uh, What do you think? All right, Daniel, let's swap out. Okay, pause, time out. Paul... Gives us a little glimpse into his philosophy of talking to people about Jesus. What goes into it? How do you do it? What's involved in it? And you can see that that's what he's talking about there in verse one. You look at verse one, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with, uh, oh, what I wrote that wrong, with lofty speech or wisdom. So what he's talking about is how do I proclaim the testimonies of God? How do I talk about Jesus? And uh, it's an immensely insightful little passage for us as a church as we think about sharing our faith in Bellingham and Whatcom County and uh, helpful for us as a congregation. So in particular, what we see is that he says that there are two things that we need to consider as we announce to the world the message about Jesus. There's two things that we need to think about as a church. That First of all, we have to think about the character of the messenger, who's bringing the message. We need to think about the char- character. And second, we have to think about the content of the message. Who's the person communicating the message, and what is the message about? Those two things are critical for us. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So first of all, the first thing we need to consider is the character of the messenger. And I think for most of us, we know that when, if someone's going to talk to you about something so personal as who is God... And how can I know the love of God? A question so, so you know, touching on my soul so deeply. If someone's going to, you know, this must be a trusted person. I must be able to trust them if I'm going to let them talk to me on that level. And, uh, you know, actually this is something that people have known for a long time, that character is the most important part of being persuasive. Uh, Aristotle, uh, in his book on rhetoric, which is a book about how do you, Be persuasive when you're trying to convince someone of something. He says, you know, there's really three things that go into being persuasive. Uh, He calls them logos, pathos, and and ethos. And he says the logos is the first thing is you're listening to someone. Someone's telling you about whatever they're trying to convince you of. And the first question you're asking is, does it make sense? Is it logical? Uh, If it doesn't make sense, I'm not going to believe it, right? So they have to be thoughtful. And that's, that's an important part of being persuasive. But also, you know, if someone's just kind of an egghead, intellectual... You're not, you know, and they're kind of reading a book to you, you're not persuaded by that. It also matters that they have some emotion in what they're telling you about, right? That's the pathos. And does it stir up your emotions? You're only going to really believe something if it kind of speaks to your heart. Some of you that, you know, and some of you are more logos, some of you are more pathos kind of people. But what Aristotle says is actually the most important thing in being persuasive when you're communicating something is actually the ethos of the person. That you have a certain sense of the character of the person you're li- listening to, and based on your dis- your judgment of their character is whether you're going to trust them, and trust what they're saying. That's the most important part, and that's why you know many people they will go for decades to a church where you know maybe maybe the pastor is you know the worst person to listen to in the world as a preacher. and You just like, I can't listen to them, but that pastor you know, was there with the family when, when the grandma was passing away. And had, there were a number of things that were critical moments in their life. The pastor was there and they say, I'm going to listen to every word he says because I know he loves me. Character triumphs all, all the other things. And that's an important thing that Paul talks about is we think about communicating the gospel is the character of the messenger. As for each one of us. And Paul highlights this the manner in which uh, he shared the gospel with the Corinthians. And we see in particular three interesting aspects of his character in this passage. We're going to look at kind of three aspects of the of the character and three aspects of the content. So first, God's messenger speaks in plain language is one of the things that Paul says. That he, God intends that his messengers speak in plain language. Look at what he says, verse 1 again. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. Paul said that when he taught, would speak about Jesus, he would speak in, it, in some kind of everyday, plain, you know, everyday man kind of language that anyone could understand. It was not full of technical philosophical language, but it was plain it was every day. And what he's saying is that Christians need to learn to communicate our faith in a language that the people around us under, will understand. It's a language that any, any of us can hear and know what we're talking about. And I'll tell you why. One of the reasons why this is so important is that technical language, philosophical language, you know, theological language, is always tribal Right, it marks out a tribe, and that they, when whenever you're listening to technical language and big words and things like that, people will say, "Oh, they all know about something that I don't know about," and so they're a little tribe that I don't have a place in, right? So, for example, you know, I was I studied math before I was going to be a pastor. I was in graduate school in math, and Shannon and I would have uh, people over for dinner from our math department, and be you know, maybe two other people and Shannon, and we get talking about you know, Epsilon balls and smooth manifolds and eigenvectors and we're laughing, making math jokes and, and she's sitting there, haha, eigenvector, wow, funny, you know. And obviously, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm alienated, I'm not in your club, I don't have a place here because there's an inside secret knowledge that I'm not attuned to, I don't know about. Whenever we are using that kind of technical jargon, language, which the Christian community is full of, we have used all kinds of words that the outside world doesn't have any idea what we're talking about. The more we use those, the more we say we are a tribe and there are people inside, and if you don't know our language, you're outside. And we don't even realize that we're communicating that to the world. And that's why actually Paul says later in, in, to the Corinthians that technical language is wrapped up in knowledge, right? You know, uh, Epsilon balls and eigenvectors is is uh, tied into intellectual knowledge, and what Paul says later to the Corinthians is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And knowledge is is what's wrapped in that that technical language is often doesn't come from a place of love. And uh, you know, C.S. Lewis in in the late 40s uh, had become internationally known as one of the the great communicators of the gospel. He'd written a number of books that had been bestsellers. And he was giving a lecture to a group of uh, pastors and priests talking to them about how do you talk about the gospel in a way that people understand, that people resonate with. And if you turn to page three in your bulletin, I put a little quote, one of his concluding thoughts about how do you communicate the gospel in plain language. This is what he says. To conclude, you must translate every bit of your theology into the vernacular. Okay, that's the everyday language. This is very troublesome, and it means you can say very little in half an hour, but it is essential. It is also of the greatest service to your own thought. I have come to the conviction that if you cannot translate your thoughts into uneducated language, then your thoughts were confused. Power to translate is the test of having really understood one's own meaning. So if we can't talk about what it means to know Jesus and to love him and to believe in the Bible in a a way that anyone off the street can understand, then we haven't come to understand it ourselves. Okay. So the first character quality, that's an act of love, he says, is God's messenger speaks in plain language. But second, we also see that God's messenger speaks in weakness. God's messenger speaks in weakness. Look at verse, verse three. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I was with you in weakness and fear. This is in fear and in much trembling. This is the apostle who, the first missionary who went out and planted all the churches and really, you know, got the church going and, and, uh, and you know, wrote. Uh, over a dozen books of the New Testament, and uh, and he says that his ministry was filled with with fear and weakness. He's shaking, right? He's scared of what you know that people are going to reject him. What are people going to think of me? Are people going to hate me because of the gospel? And he's also thinking, you know, am I even good at this? Do I even know what to say? And he says that this is actually a part of the character of God's people as we communicate the gospel is that God intends us to speak in weakness. And uh, this, is, this verse has been immense encouragement to me, I'll tell you, as a pastor. Uh, it was encouragement to me this morning as Dan, Daniel and I were praying before church. and uh, But you know, I remember early on uh, when we had started our church, we used to meet in a little auditorium downtown called Bay. It's kind of an old um, children's auditorium where they have children's plays. And um, I would always, before our service, meet up in this upstairs room that was just cluttered everywhere with, you know, children's costumes and things like that. And it was probably about our 20th service. And there were a couple guys that were kind of helping me get the, uh, this church started when we were starting the church. And I was meeting with them. It was about 15 minutes before church was going to start. And I just said to them, this sermon is a disaster. It's just not going to work. And they said, it's not that bad. You know, no one cares that much anyways. Come on. Uh, right? Right. <laughs> And so uh, I was like, let me just try it out on you. Can I just practice it on you once before we go downstairs and do the real thing, you know? And I'm, I'm just starting, and they say, fine, give it a try. So I start going through this thing, and I get about nine minutes into it, and I look up, and just both their faces are kind of deer in the headlights, and they're thinking, oh, we need to pray. This, You're right, you're right, it's not good. <laughs> so we pray, and we go down and they're saying well we just trust God we show up paul says that we preach the gospel in weakness in trembling and in fear and after the service they say i don't know what happened but we heard the sermon 5 minutes before church it was a different sermon <laughs> something happened because the spirit showed up and translated it it was the it was a working of the spirit the spirit's power and that this is essential to how we communicate the gospel is we embrace our weakness and depend on the power of the Spirit and not our power. Now let me tell you, I have to tell you one reason why this is uh, really important in a place like Bellingham. Because in a place like Bellingham, you know, we're a church that believes that the Bible is the word of God. These are in, in, in God's infallible word. And for many people, they, 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 you know, for many conservative type people especially, We take something like that and we think we have the very words of God in our hand. And what that can say to us is not actually weakness. That can say certainty, power, control. And so for many people in Bellingham, when we say we believe this is the infallible word of God, this is the inerrant word of God, there's no errors, it's it's God's word to us, people hear that is that we think that we're strong and we're in control. And actually we want to control them. And so integral to our job of communicating the gospel is God says, no, embrace your weakness. Speak the gospel in weakness, depending on the spirit. And um, I'll tell you, uh, it's interesting. You look at the Apostle Paul's ministry, because right here, you know, he says, I was with you in fear, I was trembling, I was shaking as I was talking about the gospel. And yet you go to Acts chapter 20, he also says that he preached the gospel very boldly. He he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So he's very bold, and he's very weak. How do these two things come together? Because essentially, that's what we need in a place like Bellingham, right? We need to be meek. We need to be gentle. We need to be patient. We need to be respectful, and we need to be kind. So we need to preach the gospel in in our weakness, and yet we also need to be bold believing in it how do we do both those things well this is the third mark of the characters that not just that God's messenger speaks in a plain language because, because he's loving the people we're speaking to God speaks, uh, God's messenger speaks in weakness but third that God's messenger speaks in the spirit depending on the Spirit, looking for the power and the working of the Spirit as we speak. See what what Paul says here, verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We believe that people cannot embrace the love of God that is in Christ, unless the Holy Spirit opens their heart to do so. It is against our nature to receive the love of God. And so we believe the only way someone can receive this is if the Spirit works in their hearts. And that's why, actually, this is uh, 1 Thessalonians. Paul, in another place where he's talking about his ministry, this is what he says, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So how does the Word of God cut into our hearts and penetrate into someone's heart so they can actually believe it? It's not something that we do with our words, with our arguments, with our persuasion. It is something that the Holy Spirit has to do, which allows us to have a tremendous amount of patience, right? The time that we get frustrated with people, why don't they listen to what I'm saying and believe what I'm telling them, is because we're not trusting in the Spirit. We're thinking that it's our words. I've said the perfect words. Why don't you believe them? I said it perfectly. It's because our perfect words are not what convict people. It is the Holy Spirit. And so um, trusting in the Spirit actually helps us to be persuasive because it gives us patience. And we slow down, and we're not cramming our beliefs down people's throats. We're looking for where is the Spirit working in their hearts. And actually, that's far more persuasive. People are drawn to that. They want to have that conversation. And so the Spirit is so important to enable us to boldly speak the gospel, but with gentleness and respect, and to let the Spirit do his work. And, and, you know, one of the things that also happens is when you're looking for the Spirit's work in someone. It causes you to less look for an argument, because the place where we have arguments with people about what we believe, we're actually confronting the things where we have differing beliefs against them, right? That's where the walls are built up. Now, we do need to confront people about beliefs, about their beliefs, but the Bible tells us that God's Spirit is working in common grace to all people, So they are all people, there are certain things that they know about the world, they recognize that they should love people, or maybe they have a healthy marriage, or or they they have a a business where they really care for their employees well. If people have those kinds of things happening in their life, it is because God's grace and God's spirit is already working in them. And so instead of confronting the things where we're going to have a battle, we should begin with the places where the spirit is already working. And say, look, you believe in a, in a, a just business, that as you run this business, it's, it, it gives health to all these people. Well, let's talk about the world. Who rules the world and brings justice to the whole world? That's God. That's Jesus. Right? So we're going to use those as bridges. And, uh, you know, I had a professor in seminary, his name's Jerem, Jerem Bars, who uh, his, his mother um, married a man that... Uh, it was a very difficult, man, and he knew uh, this was later in life, and he knew she should not, she should not marry him. And uh, immediately, I think he even said immediately after the wedding, uh, she had said this was a mistake. And but he, and so it was very difficult. He said, "How can I love this man? How can I share the gospel with this man? He was very closed off to me." And one of the things this man really loved was gardening and he had all these plants that he cared for and I think he named the plants maybe he talked to them and stuff like that and Jerem would say you know what this is a place where he's cultivating God's world and he believes in beauty and, and here's someone who's so resistant to the gospel but here's a bridge here's a touching point where the, where the spirit has actually revealed to them some of God's beauty and this is actually the bridge that, my, that the spirit has opened at least for now for me to talk about the gospel and so we'd always talk to him about plants and that was the thing that most naturally led to the gospel so God's Messenger is speaking in plain language from a place of weakness, but looking for the Spirit's work as we share the gospel. Okay? And let me just tell you that when we, as a people, a community, we go out into Bellingham clothed with this kind of character, right? We speak plainly, gentle in weakness, following the Spirit, and we speak about Jesus, the gospel becomes incredibly attractive. It's very attractive. People want to talk about it. Many people want to talk about it. Not everyone, but many people do. But it's interesting, as much as Paul insists that uh, the character of the messenger is an important part of how he relayed the message, he's even more insistent that the message is not about him. Okay? So his his character is really important in the communicating of the message, but he's insistent the message is not about him. And he even ends the passage by saying that. Uh, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God so actually even more important than the character of the messenger is the second thing is the content of the message okay and I just uh, let me say three things uh, about the content of the message that Paul says here and it's all wrapped up in this one verse verse two And this is really one of the verses that's really fundamental to the vision of our church. Is for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My whole teaching, my whole ministry, everything about what I was doing was a proclamation of this one thing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the same thing I was saying to you over and over again. And so that's why if you come to this church every week, what are you going to hear about? Jesus Christ and Him crucified that's what Paul says, that's the only thing, that's the one message I have that I say over and over again because that's the one message that transforms. It's the one message that, that, that gives life and leads to who God really is. And so briefly, we learned three things about the content of Paul's message in these verses, okay? The first thing is this. What is this verse? I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What, is, what does that tell us about the content of, of Paul's message? The first thing is this. That Paul's message, the gospel, is about all of life and not just a compartment of life. His message is about all of life and not just a compartment. And what I mean by that is that when we believe the gospel, the thing we're talking about is not just something that I kind of, you know, do on Sundays. It's another hobby that, you know, God I can periodically call on and he can kind of help me when, um, you know, I need... To get a house or to, you know, get a job. He certainly does help us find houses and get jobs, but that's not his primary function. He is not just a compartment that we keep on the side. He is the central thing of our life. He affects everything that we do. And you might say that when we believe the gospel, the gospel is a whole new worldview. It is a whole new lens through which we see the whole world. And, um relationships take on new meaning. Our marriage takes on new meaning. Work takes on new meanings. Hobbies and free time and money, all these things take on new meanings because it's totally turning the way we view the world upside down. And you see that here in, this, in verse 2 where, where Paul says, look, look at this verse again, look at verse 2, follow with me. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now that word, I decided, it's a Greek word, krino, which literally means To judge. I judged this way. And actually, that word crino appears over 30, variations of it appear over 30 times in 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians is all about a group of people, there's a church that's divided and everyone's fighting with each other and they're judging one another. And he says, the way that you should be judging one another, the way I judged among you was Jesus Christ and him crucified the fact that God humbled himself and became a man and took on our misery and drew us to himself and forgave our sins, that story is the defining lens on the way that I view everything, the way I view myself, the way I view other people, the way I interact with people, the way I do everything. That's the way I judge the world. In the Corinthian church, you know, Corinth was a cosmopolitan city where you had uh, people were coming into the church and the way they judged in Corinth was, are you wealthy? Are you educated? Maybe are you good looking? What family do you come from? And Paul says the new way of judging is through, through Jesus. It changes how we look at people. And many of you know that, right? When you, maybe when you became a Christian, maybe you are just bitter towards people. Maybe you are just tearing people down in your mind all the time and you became a Christian. All of a sudden, people that you never would have loved, you just love, you care for. It's because the gospel is changing the lens through which we see the world. And, um, but the question is, why would someone who's hearing the gospel want their life disrupted that way? To have a new worldview, everything turned over. Well, this is the second thing. It's not just that the message is, is about all of life and not just a compartment, but also the message is about a person and not an idea the message of the gospel is about a person and not an idea. And you see that there, verse 2 again, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, my whole message was not a philosophy or an idea. It was a person. It was an invitation to a relationship, to know someone, to be loved by someone, to be known by someone, to walk with someone, to trust someone. And um, let me just say that you know we live in a culture we're very acutely aware of how relationships affect us right so if you you know if you went to a counselor you're having problems in your life probably in your first meeting or second meeting you're going to begin to talk about the relationships in your life the family that you came from how did those relationships affect you who's hurt you in your life how have people treated you and how is that affecting the decisions that you're making we understand that relationships define us and when you go through your life and you realize, you know, there's no one in the world that I can fully, like, depend on for everything. To love me, to validate me. I can't, people, everyone will fail me to some degree, right? Some of you have had that realization. Everyone, even, even my closest friend, even my spouse, my family will fail me to some degree. And so when you realize that, you, you really have two conclusions. What are you going to do about that? If everyone's going to fail, you have one thing to say, well, I'm not going to depend on anyone. I'm going to be totally independent. My life is going to be my own. Right? Now, the assumption in that is that I'm not going to fail myself, whereas the reality is that I probably fail myself more than anyone else does. And so the only other option is to ask, is there anyone that I can that will love me perfectly, that will not fail me. That is what I need in my life, to be loved. And to be and to walk through this life with joy and with courage, is there someone who will not fail me. And Paul is saying, I'm offering you that person. Jesus Christ is that person who will love you and who will not fail you. The message is not an idea, it is not a philosophy, it is a person. And so the question is, how can I come to trust him? You know, if I've been in a world where people have mistreated me, they've taken advantage of me, they've hurt me. How can I open my heart up to trust someone who's gonna love me? And this is the third thing we learn about the message is that the message is not about something we do, but about something Jesus has done. It's not about something we do for Jesus, it's something he has done for us. In verse two again, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him Crucified. The message is Jesus Christ crucified. And the question, when you ask, how do I know Jesus isn't going to take advantage of me? I become a Christian. I give my life to him. That he's, he's not going to try to control me and put me down and, and ruin my life. How do I know that? How do I know he's not going to take advantage of me? Because he was taken advantage of for you. He was the one that was taken advantage of. He was the one who was mistreated in your place and took the death that we deserved. And so as we go to him, uh, we realize that we serve him because he first served us and his love is the thing that transforms us. And so this is a question. If you want love to be at the center of your life, the defining reality of your life, where are you going to find a greater love than in Christ, the God who came down and became a man for you and suffered in your place? Where are you going to find a greater love? If you want love at the center of your life, it is in Jesus. Paul says that's our message. As we go out into the world, as people who've been transformed by grace and by the love of Christ, telling people, saying, I want to talk to you about how does love come into this world? And we'll argue that it's, it's Jesus. And so I just pray that the Lord would give us many opportunities to talk about this message, that we would be clothed in that character of weakness, of plain language, trusting in the Spirit. We'd be clothed in that, and he'd open many doors for us to t- tell people about the great love that is in Christ, the only One who will never fail us. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your Word and for the Gospel. Lord, would you keep the Gospel central in this church, in our ministry? Would you open many doors, uh, Lord? Each one of us goes out into Bellingham and to Whatcom County. We have neighbors around us in our workplace, in our families, um, in in our neighborhoods in our hobbies and uh, would you give us gentleness and respect and patience